0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, and the church in the culture, Uh, how the church ought to be in the culture. Uh, Once again, I am Derek Reshmaoui, and I'm joined by the full cast and crew, Matt Lee Anderson, Andrew Wilson, and Alistair Roberts. And uh, before we get to the topic of today's show, we have a little bit of a housekeeping and uh, opportunity to participate. Uh, so we've had some comments in the past and even recently uh, that you know the sound quality. While we feel that the content is king here, and it's and it's and it's always stellar because we have a couple, at least a couple of smart people on the show. Um, the sound quality has been somewhat less than professional at certain points of most episodes, so um in order to in order to rectify that we we, uh, we were looking to get some new equipment, so we're actually going to start a GoFundMe account uh, so that we can buy some mics, um, pay for some overhead costs because we basically run this podcast at a at a financial loss. None of us make any money off of this. Um, and Andrew's got a couple of children, uh, Alistair, you know, <laughs>
1: he I can't, you're he going can't
0: there. Even afford a phone, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just, uh, we we need to buy, you know. There's just there's just costs here, so um, you know, editing costs, things like that. Maybe maybe just a pizza each or something. So we're gonna have a GoFundMe account up that you can you can uh, drop a little cash in the box, so to speak, um, and just help make the show a little bit more high quality because we we think that these do, these shows do provide a a service to the to the, to our listeners and and to the church. And it's not really a we want to get paid thing. It's just we want it to not sound crappy thing. So. Um, that link will be in.
2: Can I say, can I say something about that? Go for it. Um, cause I think that's, I, and I just want to underscore, we love all of our listeners and the feedback that we have been gotten has been so encouraging to us and we are so, so grateful and we do not want anyone to feel obligated to give money at all. But, yeah, yeah. um, so this is strictly on a, on a gratitude basis. Um, if you like the kind of thing that we've been doing, um, to throw, you know, a dollar in the tip jar. Uh, kind of thing to to help us cover some of the costs because we really do want to make this better and, and make the sound quality particularly um, considerably better. So all the details will be in the show notes at Murrowoxi on how to do if that. If
0: every if every listener contributes three hundred dollars, we can get Alistair a plane. All right. No, wait. That's <laughs> different. Uh, different ministry. Okay. All right. With that said, with that said, we are going to then move almost quite appropriately. To, Appropriately to today's topic, which is the subject of uh, church privilege or the the question of Christendom, so it's come up in a lot of the the recent cultural debates. um, That, in a sense, a lot of Christians have kind of lamented and talked about, you know, uh, coming church persecution and uh, and church marginalization, and what the response has often been uh, from from people on you know different sides of the issue is it what the church isn't experiencing is it's not experiencing marginalization or persecution, but rather it's losing its position of prestige, its position of privilege that kind of have its own way, its dominant role in society. Uh, so, you know, Christendom is dying. And, and for a lot of people, that's a good thing in, in their estimation. So what we want to do is take up that question, um, what, you know, what, what kind of privilege ought the church uh what kind of privilege does the church actually enjoy if at all and and what what ought it enjoy kind of whether as an institution or rather whether just as a uh you know a social force in a pluralistic society uh so that that's that's kind of what we want to take up today so we're going to hand it off uh first off just to to Matt because he's our social political guy so there you go Matt
2: <laughs> oh am i Am I the social political guy? That's news to me. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a question that has come up a lot um, when we talked about, for instance, a couple months ago, uh, living through the church's exile and Andrew's uh, piece on winter and so on. There was a comment thread uh, where people um, raised this point about Christendom, and one of the things that I find very interesting. Uh, is that we have this notion of the church and its power, where it's um, it's kind of an either or. So, so we look at the church and and in situations where the church becomes culturally ascendant or culturally powerful, um, the narrative is that the church in those situations uh, seized power or grabbed power. And, um, by doing so did something appropriate. It's never, or it's very rarely, um, viewed as, um, uh, the church acting in ways that the church should act and the culture responding to the church and, um, becoming more church-like because the church was bearing witness faithfully to what the church needed to bear witness to. Um, and, 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 and and like we can, obviously there's a big historical question here about, um, what's happening in those situations, but theoretically, right. And, um, on, 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 on the plane of, Dehistoricized theory, it's entirely reasonable to me to think that um, the church can function and Christians can function as um, mediatorial, as a mediatorial presence within a society where we bear witness to the shape of certain truths and we do that effectively. And where effectively means, as Paul says in Romans uh, 13, I think it is like people will see our good works and glorify our fathers who is in heaven and we'll be praised for that. And people will be more like us because they'll see us doing what we're supposed to do. Um, And in that sense, Christendom is an accidental quality um, or it's a a sort of uh, accident of history rather than something that the church uh, deliberately um, pursues or builds up uh, and um, but but the church views it as a possibility and as a and as a reasonable and a good possibility. Um, I think that's broadly Oliver O'Donovan's uh, account of Christendom. Um, but I I think it's worth taking seriously. Matt,
0: you are speaking nothing but crypto papist Constantinianism. I just need to say that right now. <laughs> Sorry, no, I just no, I, no, I think I just one could be a, out there. okay,
2: I, um, but. I think I think one could be a Harawassian Anabaptist. I know, um, and say everything that I yeah, just. I, said. I think that's true, that and I'm not
1: I'm, are we? I'm not quite a, um, a Hauerwasi Anabaptist, but I I can see that that's true. It's, you're thinking Matthew five, aren't you, with the men letting your light shine before men and men seeing your good works and praising your father. So, and I and I think that I, there was a question that. Um, I remember, I mean, the fact that it was Doug Wilson shouldn't blind us to the fact that I think he's probably right on this one. Um, But just said, actually, that a lot of people would be happy to talk about the church's prophetic witness to the powers. And he said, but the purpose of a prophet is that they get heard and that people actually listen to the prophetic witness that they're bringing. And effectively, Christendom is what happens when the state listens. Um, And I think that's quite an interesting, perhaps, echoing of what you've just said, I don't know, it sounds very similar to what you're saying, which is that if if the church is bearing witness prophetically and the state listens and says actually we're going to take on board this challenge you're bringing and we're going to do the sorts of things you're saying or we like the fact that, and we are giving praise to your Father who's in heaven, then they will end up actually imitating in many great ways the way the church functions. And that's effectively, a, so there's almost a polarity sometimes framed between the prophetic calling of the church and the almost kingly function of the church whereby the, king, the church rules versus the church bears witness. But of course the difference is nothing like a stark as that when the church bears witness and the state says oh okay we can see that that way is for human flourishing is for the common good and we will now begin to behave in manners that reflect the prophetic witness you're bearing there's actually almost no line at all between a prophetic and a kingly task in that way and so in a sense you could be very whole, how i see an anabaptist which i'm not myself but i nearly more probably closer than most of you um, and can see that that still remains true of the way in which the church bears witness and succeeds
0: yeah that 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 question is actually one that light I mean all joking about constantinianism aside that question is is the one that uh in large part motivates um Peter Lighthart's book um defending Constantine it's one of those that that, that I think that might be Lighthart's question before Wilson, what happens when the state what happens when the state listens uh but part of the part of the problem is that there's usually two or three levels uh two or three questions or relations between church and state, and church and culture that are all tangled up together. So, so dehistoricized discussions are fine, but one of the reasons people have the perception, or one of the reasons the narrative goes the way it goes, often in popular culture, is because we've got this idea of, about the church seizing power connected to you know a very very specific historical events like. Well, the, the conversion of Constantine and the conversion of the Roman Empire and its spread and Christianity becoming the official, you know, state religion. And then from there becoming increasingly necessary and, uh, you know, pushing out uh, pagan sacrifice and so on and so forth. Um, and so the question is is just, okay, so we've got the church bearing witness and then the state listening, but then what's the really parsing issues of the relationship between church and state like what formally you know you, you talk about the kind of the practical the practical um in a sense uh in a, in a, practically there being no line of demarcation between the prophetic and the kingly but ought that be the case like is is the this is where those questions of constantinian like you know crypto papist whatever actually starts to to, to kind of come in what what happens when the when the member of the church is actually you know the head of the state and so on and so forth what so that's i think where it starts to get a bit trickier is where oftentimes these visions also seem to include um like establishment uh you know the, the idea of a of a confessional church for the state and so on and so forth and are we talking about church's institution or or church's organism. You know, Kuyper and, and Bobbink and some of the Dutch Reform guys talk about church as as institution and church's organism. So is it is it the, are we talking about church's organism as as kind of like as the people go out and are a force and all that? So I'm just I'm not saying anything, I'm just throwing a bunch of distinctions out there that I, I still think need to get parsed and maybe Alistair can weigh in. <laughs>
3: On the issue of the separation of church and state, I think there's a need for a greater clarity about what we mean when we talk about separation of church and state, partly because that separation has undergone a number of changes in it, the popular understanding of what has involved in that. So previously, the separation would be seen primarily between two jurisdictions, the jurisdiction of the state, which is the secular jurisdiction of this age. Um, The secular is not a realm that is free from religion, free from um, God's concern, uh, a realm of human autonomy. It's nothing like that. Rather, it's the time between the times, the time before the eschaton. And when we're talking about the church, the church is a Distinct jurisdiction, and the state has no right to exercise its authority within the jurisdiction of that authority. Whereas, I think when people talk about church and state now, what they tend to think about is the separation between the rule of religious principles and some principles of pure secularism that have nothing no relation to Christian truth at all. And it also becomes individualized. So it's no longer the jurisdiction of a particular body, the church, but it's the jurisdiction of the individual conscience. And even further from that, that concept of the individual conscience being freed from secular control has become the more general right of the individual to celebrate and enjoy consumer preferences without um, being interrupted or prevented by state control on some level. So it becomes a matter of individual autonomy in consumer um, practice, which is a very distinct movement away from the idea of two separate jurisdictions. And so when we're talking about church and state, if we have that greater clarity with respect to the history of the concept of that distinction i think we will be more quick to speak to the question
2: so matt it- but it's a, there's also a failure yeah no i was just yeah, going to say how it. i just want to know what you're going to say next
1: because I, I when i said that speaks to the question i'm kind of thinking from your perspective what it, what is the question it, if, if you were to accept what we're saying about the the relationship between church and state, and that christendom is when the state listens and so on but presumably there's still a problem for you behind the response that came up with your initial some of your initial comments and some of our discussions in in terms of the uh, a a way in which some people would regard it as being privileged to have certain rights and responsibilities preserved what how how would you define what the question is to which you think we're sort of we're beyond Christendom can be a thing how would you define where the sharp edge of that is in in our day anyway
3: well I think understanding this distinction between church and state as it's functioned historically can be helpful in a number of points it can be helpful to avoid the charge that you're trying to immunitize the eschaton or establish the kingdom here and now by human effort. That's not what's involved. And when we've understood the distinction between church and state, that becomes clearer. Also I think there's an important strain of um Protestant thought that understand speaks in terms of two kingdoms. And that is very important to maintain the difference between between these areas. And church and state distinction It's not necessarily a distinction between this realm of pure human autonomy and secularism and neutrality and this realm of the church, which is this realm of religion, conscience, these sorts of things. As those terms tend to function, but rather it's the distinction between two jurisdictions. And so I think that's helpful as well. It helps us to preserve a notion of a notion of the church as something distinct from the state without saying that the state is thereby declared to be neutral or religiously autonomous.
2: Right. And so there's, there's a, there's a huge gap in this conversation even between our respective polities and partly what goes on in the American conversation is the inability to conceive of a, um, a queen who would be the head of the church as a um, liberal. And I mean that L in a like technical sense in it it, that, that the, you know, this concept that the queen would be the head of the church would safeguard and preserve religious liberties, not just for Christians, but for everyone. And so what I think hangs on this question Um, is, you know, within the States we have, um, the gay marriage crisis and the disputes about religious liberty that are emerging out of that crisis and lots of conservative Christians being very concerned about the kind of, um, religious liberties that, um, uh, we think are appropriate and fitting to the expression of our faith being impinged upon by these new legal and political developments. Um, and the question would be something like Is pursuing those kinds of liberties a sign of the church's um, to, to being too closely aligned with the state? And wanting a kind of privileged status with respect to the state? Um, Or should we um, just let go of the interest that we would have in those kinds of religious liberty concerns and um, seek a more... um, sort of non-privileged account where the church wouldn't be, wouldn't have special exceptions um, and religious communities wouldn't have special exceptions made for them with respect to the law, but would just be one institution among many subject to the same laws as everyone else. Um, Because, because I think we, we attach, um, we attach Privilege to a kind of corrosion of the church. And because we can't imagine the church being a privileged institution, the Christian church being a privileged institution within a society and that being good, not just for Christians, but for everyone in the society. Um, I think that's, that's the fundamental failure that, that, um, that the privileged rhetoric, um, and and the dec- decrying the privilege rhetoric misunderstands. Well, One thing that there's the privilege
0: a, there, there's, there. Well, as you say, there's a couple of levels to the privilege thing because, again, is it? it there's some strains where it's saying, okay, well, it's it's got legal privileges, right? It's got you know churches don't pay taxes or certain you know legal exemptions, but then there's also just the. The broader cultural privilege of having its assumptions and values, um, in a sense, assumed throughout society and culture, and and just kind of having things go that way. I I, I think there's actually a couple of slipp I think there's slippage there as well, and there's a couple of senses of privilege being, um, being conflated, and 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 realizing. Okay, well, we we've lost our kind of our. Intellectual and cultural privilege, and in, in the sense of, you know, Christian Christian substructure of thought, just being, yeah, we, we're we're we we're, we're largely, you know, quote unquote Christian, vaguely Christian, versus things like churches and individual consciences in the realm of religion, so to speak, being having having legal protections and privileges. Um, those two, I think, are being, I don't know, collapsed, and then and then because people don't think that the first ought to be the case and then they kind of think that the second you know the, the cultural is collapsed and illegal and then they think that then the legal should be done away with because they also associate that legal with um in a sense establishment and 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 a, and a heightened legal stance so there there's a there's there's a few things there sorry i don't know if that was coherent but.
2: right no that's that's right but i just want to underscore and that's that's why the question of whether the British establishment can be um, uh, a permissible form of government is a huge question for Christians in America to wrestle with on these issues. Um, because if it's the case that um, a society could be so Christian that the head of its um, even even the like um, uh, decorative, Head of government or head of state, rather, would be um, the head of the church also, and that would be good for the entire society. Um, If that's the case, then you know all the questions that we have about privilege and tax exempt status take on a very different hue. When we're talking about about tax
3: exempt, when we're talking about tax exempt status, I think it's very crucial to understand the distinction between the state recognising that the church does not fall within its jurisdiction, so it has no right to tax it. And thinking of tax exemption as some sort of pre- special privilege that the state gives out to some agency that appears within its jurisdiction, there is a big difference between those two things, and I'm not sure it's often recognised. It certainly
4: wasn't recognised by me until 15 seconds ago, Alistair. so thank you for that. <laughs> I never thought. Like that. I'm... I'm... I was I was thinking about I was thinking about the Arastin side of all this, as in the idea that the church, the state is the head of the church. So obviously, in in Matt's telling, which I totally understand, is the idea is wow, the fact that the head of the state can be the head of the church is an elevation of the church within the modern context. Whereas, of course, originally it was a subservience of the church was the idea that the state gets to tell. Actually, does there are different jurisdictions as Alice was saying that the, the The church sits within the power of the state, or somehow is now sort of effectively, in the English settlement anyway, um, as somehow beneath the power of the state. And I think that's quite interesting that separation of church and state in America and separation of church and state, in as much as it exists at all in Britain, means really quite different in terms of who's getting promoted and who's getting promoted. It is almost functioning in mirror image ways on opposite sides of the Atlantic because of what the the sort of the, the deal with Henry VIII was, and I think that's quite an interesting point as well. Although I know that's more of an obs- slightly more obscure historical point, I think it it isn't necessarily that saying that the Queen is the head of the Church in that sense, or the supreme governor of the Church. That isn't necessarily to say, look at this amazing place the Church has, and in a certain context, obviously in its day, it and then the Church is now, the Church power is now being relativised and is now forced to be sort of submitted in certain way to the state. There's I thing is quite an interesting angle on it, but may not contribute much to what we're talking about.
2: But... Yeah, and... Yeah, but the paradox is, Andrew, that now... Um, now, the Queen, as head of the Church, has um, a pulpit from which she is able to expound the Gospel in a way that, in America... Um, we don't have anything like it. And so when she gives her Christmas addresses, um, what you get is practically, I mean, the last few have been essentially pure, unadulterated, um, gospel proclamation, um, about the meaning of the incarnation for, uh, Christians and for all people. And like, that's, it's, it's just kind of wonderful, and um it's a it's a really unique it's a really unique opportunity and and i think the question is something like look if this gospel is really true if it's really good for all people um and the church is the authorized witness to the gospel in what way would it be bad for a society or a people to have the church be the primary or the dominant institution, even in such a way that the government would um, uh, privilege Christianity and christianity 's point of view
3: I found looking through the gospel looking through the gospel recently i've been struck struck by the way that within Matthew particularly, Jesus talks about sending his disciples to the different towns and cities of um, Judea and um, Israel. And depending on the way that they are received, whether they're welcomed or shown hospitality or not, the judgment of those towns and cities will occur on that basis. And I think this is something that is suggested in Matthew 25 as a more general thing that will happen with um, societies throughout the gospel age. As God sends his, messen- Christ sends his messengers to different places. They represent his presence. And as they are received or rejected, so will these um, nations be judged or separated as sheep from goats. And there's a very much a political dimension to this. It's not just individuals who are being judged, it's cities and towns and um, political bodies. And in the same way, when the church is received by a society and recognized as the representative of a jurisdiction that is greater than its own, as the representative of the rule of Christ and as a body that speaks in his name and with his authority, and welcomes and shows hospitality to to the church and seeks to enact justice and to repent from forms of oppression, these sorts of things. When the church is responded to in that sort of way and shown hospitality, I believe that we are seeing the sort of response to the gospel that Christ was looking for. Christ's gospel has a very political edge to it within Matthew and within the other gospels where it is presented as something that is declared to the nations. The nations are the ones that are called to repent, not just individuals from the nations, but Political bodies, um, cities, towns, villages, and I don't think that many people have that conception of the church being received by a society. But I think we should do.
0: Yeah, I, I, I probably don't have a good argument, but it, it, when I'm when I'm around the more Anabaptisty and or just generally not Anabaptist, more pro- progressively. Church, states bad, wicked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I kind of start sounding the slightly more Christendom note. But when I'm when I hear you guys, um, there's just something I can't put my finger on it. I was tracking more earlier when Matt's talking about that kind of leavening presence and the and, and the good of the you know, Christian the Christian gospel being good news for all. Like I, I, I can see, you know, Christians arguing for conscience protections is is good for everybody right it's good for it's good for jews it's good for muslims it's good for other religious minorities arguing for um so, like and arguing for even christian goods you know people can debate either way on the marriage question but but really for the flourishing of society it, you know certain certain social structures that we get from our understanding of the gospel and the human person and all that uh, if we argue for them in the context of a pluralistic society, and, and we persuade, no, you know, non-coercively persuade, and then kind of enact, it probably will be good for the social whole. But then, make going from there to a more establishment view, kind of having an established church and having, you know, the, a queen as, as you know, have you know, in a sense, giving a sermon. As an officer of the church and the specific office of ruler political ruler, that is where i don't i get I get nervous and I don't know i I just maybe it's my Presbyterian mission well, I just don't I don't see I don't see office I see officers in the church being elders and deacons. you can maybe swing a bishop in there i I don't go for it but I, I don't see the, you know the the theological you know the, the churchly office of political ruler like i just don't uh i don't see it in the in the obviously the new testament context is limited but um but going from even when a culture and a society in a sense responds to the gospel i, I just don't see that office springing up so to speak um
2: Sure. So I – and I just want to go on the record saying that I am actually undecided um, on the question of whether I like the idea. (laughs) Uh, Only only Matt would
4: say anything as slightly pompous as I'd like to go on the record and say I do
0: not have an opinion. Guys, it's okay. Matt hasn't
2: decided. You don't (laughs) – Why is is that – why is that pompous? I – I – For which record are you
4: speaking? I just wonder who's writing this down and making sure I I have now got that recorded.
2: It's it's being recorded and going on the internet. It's going on the internet. has a series of
0: fidelity records where our proclamations are recorded. It's part of the canons (laughs) of the show.
2: Okay. Look, I've just spent – I it's, it's, it's conceivable to me that given the last, oh, 20 minutes of conversation, a listener might decide that I am just plain nuts. And so yeah, sure. I would just like to clarify that I am interested in uh, that institution as a witness and as one possible witness which I want to take seriously – and not just dismiss out of hand. And I want to do it because of this. Um, in addition to the Christian values, Derek, that you mentioned, um, the protection of religious liberty for all is a preeminent Christian value because Christianity itself is rooted in, um, uh, a response which is intrinsically and inherently non-coercive, right? The response of faith is a um, very different thing than what we do when we're co- coerced to do something, and it's and it's actually like literally not clear to me that the principle of non-coercion with respect to um, beliefs can be justified except on theological grounds. And it's not clear to me that every theological system in the world has a similar principle of non-coercion. And if that's the case, then that itself, that principle, very principle itself may be a sign of the residue. It may be some of the residue of Christendom, which we should definitely want to hold on to, but that residue may be best preserved and supported in context where we're honest about where that came from and why it still endures and the kind of conditions that need to be in place for it to endure.
3: I think Matt's absolutely right and on that, that. And I, that. I think... It's, so, it's yeah. easy to think that yeah. Yeah. I think
4: the, the best argument Christianity is to supporting that. From... <laughs> <laughs> you all want well, to the, dis- defeat well, the me. I understand. I get it. The representatives I representatives
0: From from across the pond, which one of you will seed?
4: <laughs> no, well, I, I I think Come I, would, on, I would say that the the Nietzschean argument for what Matt is saying, uh, although from the absolute, he would regard it as a very good thing, but Matt would regard it as a very bad thing that Christianity from the world and take all the legacies of Christ, Christian thinking about the nature of earthly power, the nature of what a human is, the nature of how societies flourish, the nature of what values and morality should be. Christianity dies, and uh, so, and at the moment, there's a few weird vestiges of it left over in Nietzsche's day, which are still kicking around and getting in the way, but eventually they'll go too. And and so they should. And of course, Matt's saying no, and and, and so am I. Um know when Christianity, if Christianity society it will take all of those values with it and that's a terrible thing for human flourishing and in a way Nietzsche provides like the out absurdum of what Matt is saying could happen, which is when you take the Christianity, that you, you saw off a branch of setting, remove the foundation of the house will down, it's all of those sorts of things, um, all of those sorts of images for for what happens. so I think they're arguing for Christian, I don't like the language of arguing for Christian privilege because it sounds so low, but I think when understood in the way Matt's framing it Effectively to argue for the privileging of a Christian view of the of the human and the Christian view of human flourishing is to argue for the common good. Uh, for, right. uh, if you have a take any kind of Christian view of the world, you've got to be assuming that it's going to be good for everybody if a Christian world prevails. And if you remove that, you might end up with, of course, a very happy, mellow pluralism where everybody gets along and nobody, nobody and nobody oppresses Christians. But you might very well have something much more like what Nietzsche saw, which obviously is a much more apocalyptic and terrifying specter of what a world without any Christian principles would actually look like. Um, and it might be a much darker picture than many of the progressives that Derek is talking about would get.
3: I think the yeah, point
0: that I, I, Matt So, makes, so there's,
4: that, there's that... All
3: right. I think the Go point it, that man. Matt makes about um, the basis of Christian truth being something that provides for the common good, I think is crucial, because people often... Th- think of Christendom, for instance, as something absolutely opposed to any notion of pluralism. Whereas I believe there is a basis for a Christian pluralism. We have a Christian account of hospitality, a very strong one. And on the basis of that, we can form societies that are welcoming to people from many different backgrounds and build a culture that's based upon persuasion rather than coercion. But that doesn't mean that every single belief system has to be Treated on a neutral basis, and that whole idea of a neutral basis privileges a particularly anti religious viewpoint a lot of the time. So I don't think that we need to see it as a flattening out of everything on this neutral horizon, but at the same time, I think that Christian thought has the resources to provide for a pluralistic society. It's just a Christian pluralism, a society that is based upon Christian values and that welcomes people from different backgrounds within that framework
0: yeah that, 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 I think there's there's a certain element for me where it's the inevitability of of having to to work out our our in a sense principled pluralism or whatever from within a Christian system. Simply because there is, there is no neutral. I, I kind of there there is no neutral ground. Uh, there there's 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 Christian there's a Christian logic for conscience and freedom protections. There is a you know quote unquote secular enlightenment logic for conscience and freedom protections. There may or may not be an Islamic one. There may or may not be uh, you know. And so, but inevitably, you're accepting some particular particular unique viewpoint it's presuppositions about society and the human the human good and all that kind of thing and 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 one of the one of the points that always frustrates me frustrates me to no end is when you know the quote-unquote the neutral point is is seen as as not a sectarian a an an inherently sectarian view I mean in a sense, the point is you either have to work from Paul or from Paul or from you know Kant or whoever. It's not like Paul or just neutral reason. It's it's Paul or somebody else. So in in that sense, yes, we have to work from a Christian theological standpoint. We have to work from that, and and so inevitably, if Christians are going to argue for these things, we're going to do it that way. But it's just still that that issue of the particular details of what that privilege looks like and the, and the state, uh, the protections for non Christian, uh, persons, you know, not, people are not members of the church. People who are not members of, of the faith. Um, that's, that's the thing where the, the, the fear comes in and the, and, and, you know, just cause it, it hasn't, you know, our, our past in this area has not been glorious. Right. Um, Various states uh, uh, in our in our in our history that have you know claimed Christ and claimed to have heard the call of the gospel have not recognized the implications of the gospel as a as the kind of thing that needs to be freely offered freely responded to and then and then in a sense the rights of of people to not believe to be protected and so so on and so forth so um, yeah I'm, I'm ready
2: the abuse. The abuse does not invalidate the proper use. Yeah, I, I, I get it, and I know. I, 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 and I know we've got to we've got to wrap up, but I think that's that's you know this question. So if you if you put our last few conversations together, um, we've talked about uh, in part, among other things, the relationship between theory and history. Last time we talked about um, the natural law versus Easter. Um, And this time we're talking about the politics of Christendom versus um, sort of the politics of a liberal neutral state. And I think if you take those three conversations and staple them together, it's worth reflecting about how they all fit together um, for all of us. And,
0: and I think that's one thing we, we haven't really talked about. We, we, we didn't talk about the politics of, in a sense, um, we haven't talked about the alternatives, like kind of what the implications and the internal logic of, of what it's supposed to otherwise. I mean, we're talking about what, what, what could Christendom look like? How could it work? How this or that? We haven't looked at, OK, what is the, what is the alternative look like? Partially because we're kind of living in it. But, but where, where does that go? might be something worth reflecting on on there. Um,
3: my impression is that when, yeah, they, when people talk about the relationship between church and state within a Christian Christendom context they tend to think of the two being collapsed together whereas if the church is really being welcomed as a prophetic voice within the society by the state then what you have is a critic of the state and its um, injustices that 's being welcomed within the heart of the state and its practices, and one thing you find for instance, within the established church within the u k or within England is that the church often will speak with a prophetic, challenging, critical voice to the state and it is listened to on some to some level because it has an authority, and that authority is. Not an authority that is just simply allied with the authority of the state, it's an authority that can be brought to bear against the state on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, people who are marginalised and we will always need that, the state is never going to be perfect and we always need this critical voice and having the church established. Actually, gives us this critical voice, this ability to challenge the state from within it, without having to just wrestle things out at the margins. We're actually recognised as a voice, and we can speak to the state with authority.
0: Okay, but but do do other do other do other voices get that prophetic edge? In a sense, to do, does uh, you know does an, an association of imams or the you know the the the, the in a sense, the representatives of the faculties of leading universities and their magisterium of, you know, liberal humanism—do they have, in a sense, that same kind of voice in in things? Do, where, where, yeah,
3: that's what it depends. Not to the same degree. That, I mean, we have bishops in the House of Lords and things like that. So,
0: right. So, so that's that's. I think that's one of the questions that people would. What I would say is like so. So this is a specifically institutional privilege. That that is an in specifically institutional privilege for the institutional church to have. You know, you know, you're the court prophet in that sense. Um And no, no other, no other groups do have that. Like theoretically, I think if they're actually giving Christian answers, oh, you know, okay, I, I'm going to agree with those more. But there's just that. Is there a Christian logic for allowing those other voices to have the same uh, – within kind of a Christendom mindset, is there is there a logic for allowing those voices to have the same you know amount of airtime, so to speak? I, I don't know if that's a confused question, but it, it, I think it's one of the relevant ones. I,
2: well, I think we're out of time. I think it's part of the problem. Uh, um it's not, I mean, I think the question is whether that's, um, that kind of quote equal airtime is, um, what's fitting and appropriate for a polity to do, um, in order to maintain the kind of freedom that the gospel demands that we maintain for all people.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I don't know where you listeners are with all this. I'm not really sure where I am with all this. But we do know one thing for sure. Matt is on the record as just being interested in having a queen who's the head of the American church. Uh, so just, just so we're clear, it's just a possibility in Matt's mind. So don't worry. We're not there yet. He if has Matt a, wants he has to abandon to, uh, the American
3: Revolution, then we will welcome him with open arms. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I will I will take your tea and I will dump it in whatever harbor we can ha- find. That happens I'll I'll raid I'll raid the I'll raid the tea from Matt's house and throw it in the, you know, the 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 Gulf of Mexico nearby. Um so on that on that patriotic note, uh we're going to wrap up. Once again, we we're, we're going to have a link for the GoFundMe account help the us make this sound good for you and give Alistair food. Uh, so that's our, that's, our, that's our slogan on that. Uh, hope, you have a, hope you had a good listen. Feel free to share if you found this helpful. If not, just ignore it. Have a good one.